And I open this email and it says important family information. But they're writing to share that their 18-year-old child has come to understand that they're transgender. Their child was born Justin and is now June. We start to strategize about how best to share that with our daughters because at this time they're seven and nine. And I see that panel, love has no labels. My values have been screaming to get out. When people are unsettled, they will go back to their faith or their beliefs. Yet, I'm, I'm just curious, why did you go to these are my values? It was just a couple weeks away from the inauguration of the 45th president of the United States. It, that's part, that's really what was unsettling to me. Like that was what was kind of getting to me and wanting my values to come out. Spoiler alert, Julie built a wall. You know, over the years, like having that wall in our living room has given us the language to have difficult conversations with a grace that I'm not sure we'd have had otherwise. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast by the Oak Guild Institute. I'm Kate Whitehead, and in today's podcast, we hear from a woman sharing her process, her method really, of defining and living out her values in San Francisco Bay Area as she and her husband raise their kids. The values are, in part, born out of real pain and conflict stirred up after the 2016 election. Her journey had her seeing the world by now somewhat differently than her own parents back in Missouri. She seeks to define what is true in her life and where is her North Star, or her North Stars, for her and her family. The stories are personal and unique yet inspiring and quite universal. And they give us a framework to have difficult conversations. Defined values provide a way to be centered when we find ourselves incompatible with what's going on around us. Clarified values allow us to wrestle with how to adapt to a changing world without losing our footing. But let's take a step back. Most organizations have a mission statement. Whether they are businesses, nonprofits, or religious in nature, they have an action-based statement that declares the purpose of and how they serve their customers or their clients or congregants. But what is the origin of that mission? Beliefs about the world and how it could be spawn values. And values are the guiding principles and culture that provide purpose to an organization. So what about you? What gives you purpose? Have you taken the time to define your individual principles or standards of behavior? your judgment of what is important in life? Maybe this podcast will inspire you to define or to refine your values. Values sometimes come from our beliefs, but as you hear in this story, they are often forged or strengthened out of conflict. When something happens in the world or in our lives that we can't make sense of, or conflicts with how we view the world, we need to explain why. Why does it conflict with our principles or standards of behavior? And how will we respond? For generations, humans have been passing on our values to the next generation through families and school, religion, and neighborhood communities. In this podcast, Julie and Jake explore all of that and focus on a few of Julie's values, why they come about, and how she and her husband and kids live them out. Her values are so powerful, full of love, celebration of individuals, and shared respect. 
And you may also get some creative inspiration for a little house decoration along the way. So here's Jake Chaco to properly introduce his guest. Hello, I'm Jake Chaco and welcome to another Life of the Mind podcast from the Oak Guild Institute. I am really looking forward to today's conversation because of my guest, her story, and the topic for the day, a topic very much at the heart of the Oak Guild Institute. I was pointed to a keynote talk my guest gave at the East Bay Women's Conference earlier this year. That talk captivated me. It captivated me because it goes to the crux of the types of issues we deal with at OGI, a relentless search for truth via loving dialogue, even if contested, followed by a quest for action. Our guest went through a similar journey. Several years ago, during a restless night, a night where she couldn't fall asleep, tossing and turning, full of anxious thought, my guest did something. What she did that night, and then over the next several days with her husband and daughters, and then over the next several years with her family of origin and friends, is the subject of today's podcast. My guest's name is Julie Umin. I suspect we will go well over time, and we might have to break this podcast into two parts. Also, because we only do audio podcasts right now, there were visuals used at that keynote. These visuals will be available in the detailed show notes soon on the OGI website. Before we get to the story, Julie, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your history before the story that starts our conversation. Sure. Thanks, Jake. First, I want to thank you um, for inviting me into this discussion. I've had the opportunity to get to learn a little bit more about the Oak Guild Institute, and I'm really inspired by all the work you are doing um, to support loving, contested um, dialogue. And I, I just, it really strikes a chord with me personally. And I just, I, I think we need more of this in the world. And I'm really grateful to your organization and for doing that. So thank you for having me today. Um, if, if I were to go back and, and kind of share some background, I guess, on myself, I grew up in Missouri, uh, spent most of my formative years there. I'm the third child of four. I went to school in Missouri in a, in a very small town, very rural America, 1,200 people, went to a bigger school nearby in a town of 40,000 people for high school, and then went to a bigger school for college in a town of 125,000. That was University of Missouri, Columbia. So over this time, I'm living in small town America. Um, I like to say I grew up playing cards drinking sweet tea and going to church on Sundays. Uh, my faith was a big part of my background growing up. And then as I got older and was in college, I fell in love with someone who moved out to California. And so before I knew it, I was following my heart out to San Francisco. And uh, over that time, that relationship fizzled. And we'd actually were, it's, it's kind of interesting because we were, um, engaged to be married. So I thought I had my whole life set. And, and then what happened was we called off the wedding. And on the day that I was supposed to get married, my girlfriends rallied around me and they're like, hey, let's do something. Let's do something crazy. Let's go to Monterey and let's just go skydiving. Let's jump out of a plane, which I thought was fantastic on a day when I thought I was going to be taking a big leap in my life to, to literally jump out of a plane. And so I got some of my friends together. And at the time I was working at KPMG and my colleagues joined me and we went skydiving and it was amazing. But what's even better is 
fast forward four years later, maybe four or more years, I'm not sure how long it was. Um, I'm walking down the aisle with my husband, Phil, who was literally jumping out of the plane with me that day. So we were friends at the time and he was just a colleague. And on the day that I thought that I would get married to someone else, I ended up jumping out of the plane with the right person. So that's kind oh of like a, an interesting little, yeah, kind of an interesting little anecdote of how life, life can give you lemons and, and even unbeknownst to you can make lemonade. But I, I came out to that's California. A fabulous, that, that's a fabulous story. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Isn't it? Isn't that interesting? It's still, and the funny thing is I didn't even connect the dots on that until more recently when I was sharing a story about jumping out of an airplane and I was like, oh my gosh, I did that with Phil. Um, so yeah, and then I'm in San Francisco just falling in love with everything that is the Bay Area. I love to bike. I'm outdoorsy, love to hike. I loved my time as a young professional getting to go to coffee shops with friends who were expats from around the globe and really opening my mind to the melting pot that is San Francisco in the Bay Area. And it just felt amazing. Uh, over that time, as I mentioned, I eventually met my husband um, and his family is local. And we got married and started our family in San Francisco. We now have two daughters. Our oldest daughter is 10. Her name's Anjali. Um, and before long, we outgrew our, our apartment in San Francisco and moved to the suburbs to be closer to the in-laws. And, um, and then we welcomed our second daughter, Neela. And over that time we have, you know, my career has spanned finance, both my husband and I are in finance, uh, worked at big companies like Visa, worked in mergers and acquisitions. And now I'm at a local company that's private equity backed doing that as well called ASG. And our family over that time has also on the personal side, we're huge Golden State Warriors fans. That's really, we live and bleed uh, Golden State, you know, blue and gold. And uh, that's given us a lot of, a lot of fun memories over the years as well. So big, big basketball family. Super. Uh, got anything, anything more you want to share before we get into your story or I'll just comment on it? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to think. It's when you try to think about your life in a nutshell, um, there's a lot more to tell, but I think it'll probably come out. Before we get started, let me do a full disclosure for our listeners. The person who pointed me to your talk, Julie, was my cousin Sam. Second cousin, really. But for us South Asian Indians, we considered several generations of cousins beyond first as true cousins. Sam and I were talking about what we're doing in our, quote, retirement. I described one of my passions, which is the Oak Guild Institute, and what we're trying to do vis-a-vis -vis loving dialogue, even on contested topics. He immediately pointed me to that keynote talk, and it turns out that talk was given by his daughter-in-law, you. Sam and I are around the same age. We both came to the U.S. as immigrants earlier in our lives, as did our wives. The only difference is your in-laws, Sam and Gilsa, you call her Gilsa, right? Yeah. Came yeah. over earlier in their marriage as young adults. My wife, Sushil, and I came separately with our parents and siblings in our early teens. Other than that, there are many parallels between our two lives in both texture and color. We raised our kids here, we had our careers here, and now both couples are enjoying our grandkids here in the Bay Area. 
Finally, I'll say, even though, Julie, we knew of each other, ran into each other at family functions, this is the first time we're actually sitting down and talking at length. So on a personal basis, I really appreciate that opportunity. Thank you, Julie. No, absolutely. Likewise. Um, so let's get into the, the story that intrigued me. And it, it was indeed maybe five, six years ago, a dark night of the soul that, that stirred you into action. So tell our listeners about that night and what you did. Spoiler alert, um, Julie built a wall, much like our former president built a wall or tried to build a wall, but it's a different kind of wall. But uh, with that teaser, why don't you take it away, Julie? Yeah, thanks, Jake. I, vivid, I still vividly remember the night, and it was in January 2017. So you can imagine the timing and the context. I'm lying in bed, the lights are out, and I just can't get to sleep. I'm tossing and turning, and the voices in my head are loud. They're screaming with this urgency to get out. And as I lay there tossing and turning, I just I, I reach for my phone, and I start to write down all of the words that are in my head, hoping if, if I can get them out, then maybe I can get back to sleep. And then I slowly started to realize when I'm looking at the words reflecting back at me on the screen, that they're my values, that my values have been screaming to get out. And the next day I was having breakfast with Phil and, and I shared with him how unsettling this was, but that I had an idea. Um, we have this wall in our family room and over the years, various pieces of art have cycled through the wall, but nothing has ever felt right. And so my idea, as ambitious as it was, was to design a gallery wall with canvases of different shapes and sizes that we could overlay our values on. And I'm in finance. I am not an artist. I don't have any background as such. And uh, what's more, I told Phil, I thought we should have our daughters help paint the canvases. And I think at this time, gosh, they might have been three and five. So this was kind of a crazy idea, but he agreed because uh, he's a really good man, and I think he knew I needed this for my soul. And so that weekend, we turned our garage into a paint studio where we had our own paint stations with canvases and paint and easels. And for smocks, we're wearing these giant oversized Golden State, Go Golden State Warrior t-shirts, the kind that they give away when you go to a game, which is fitting. As I mentioned earlier, one of our family's core values is an unwavering support of the Golden State Warriors. And that weekend, we paint 30 canvases, and we overlay 30 of our values on the canvases. And it, I'm still not sure how it all came together, but when you step back and you kind of you look at it, it's kind of like this brilliant sunrise on the left that gets brighter and deeper red, and, and then it kind of fades into the sunset and a deep blue ocean. And when you're looking at it, it just it feels right. And it feels even better that our daughters help, help to build that. Um, and so I, I took all that energy that I had, you know, leading up to the inauguration. And I guess that's another thing is January 2017 to kind of put a, you know, a pin on it is it was just a couple weeks away from the inauguration of the 45th president of the United States. And that election itself just really fanned the flames of racism and misogyny and it, that's part, that's really what was unsettling to me. Like that was what was 
kind of getting to me and wanting my values to come out because it just felt like everything was under attack. Um, and so we channeled that into building our own wall and uh, it's a wall of our values. And that's what, that's what's on our living room wall these days. That is such a, such a cool thing, a wall with, with your values. And we're going to not go over all of them, but we're going to peel off some, but a question though, why, um, why values, Julie? You said you grew up with a lot of faith, and usually when people are unsettled, they will go back to their faith in terms of creedal beliefs or, say, doctrine. Mm. Um, I'm just curious, why did you go yeah. to these are my values, these are my faith yeah. or whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. And as a mature adult now, like my faith itself has has definitely evolved over the years, and um, my husband's not like, I, I grew up Catholic and my husband's not, um, having, you know, practicing the faith or religion. And so I think that's also expanded my perspective on, you know, just a foundation of good values to frame your life and, and good behavior, so to speak. And it's, you know, a moral compass without having to be as explicit in, uh, religious beliefs. I think that probably ha- had a lot to do with it. No, that's 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 very insightful because religion can be us them, whereas values have less of a our values maybe uh, more yeah. sustainable without the ideology or the tribalism. So that's that's really cool that you came up with yeah. values as opposed to beliefs, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because yeah, I love it, and it's funny because one of the values is very it to that that notion because it's a quote some of the values are quotes or the panels and it says quote i never said that quote jesus <laughs> it, it's literally speaking to that on how sometimes um religion can be hijacked to serve different means and and it can become more ideology and us for them and not as inclusive sometimes okay no uh, thank you for that so in the in the uh, talk, as I remember, you you, you peeled off and uh, alighted on a lot of the different values. We'll we'll, we'll do a couple, and I, I really, especially for the listeners uh, of this podcast and the Oak Guild Institute, uh, I want to hone in at the end on empathy and use that as a springboard for uh, for some discussion because you know that arguably is the key to listening, learning from each other and loving dialogue. So that was one of the values. I was so glad to see that. So we'll end with that. But let's, uh, just to give our listeners a taste of some of the values in there, let's have some fun. You pick one, I'll pick one. We'll go back and forth a couple of times and then we'll eventually land on empathy. So pick pick one that might be interesting to share and what it is and why you pick. Oh my goodness. Um, there's, so, there's so many. Um, I'll start with we believe, which on the surface, you know, you can imagine this is a values wall and it's, it's anchored in what we believe. Um, but this particular canvas is really anchored in our belief of the Golden State Warriors and our, it's kind of twofold in that sense. Um, and it started, if you think back to 2007, living in the Bay Area, the Golden State Warrior team at that time hadn't been to the playoffs in 13 years. And they are an underdog. This is back in, it's, it's well before Steph Curry. It's back in the days of Baron Davis, Stephen Jackson, and a young Monte Ellis. 
and they're really scrappy. And analysts have already written them off as a team of misfits. And towards the end of that season, there's about two months to go, and we believe becomes the team's unofficial slogan. And it's not even sponsored by the Warriors front office. There are fans that are literally starting this this uh, movement where they're bringing hundreds and then thousands of we believe signs into the arena, and it works. They go on uh, to win the majority of their their games, leading just barely letting them edge past the LA Clippers to take the eighth spot in the playoff series. So they're going to be up against number one Dallas Mavericks, and as I mentioned, you know they've been written off as a team of misfits, and they haven't made it to the playoffs in 13 years. Bill and his buddies at this time, you know, are just recently out of college, few years out of college. They don't know when their team's ever going to make it back to the playoffs, so they scrape together a small fortune to attend Game 3, the first home game at Oracle. And if you've been to a game at Oracle, you know the energy is electric. You can feel it in your bones. And Game 3 was literally, a, it was like a power surge in the making. It was, it was intense. And Phil and his buddies are so high, they're above the Jumbotron, but they're in the arena and they're enjoying the game. And the Warriors ride that energy on to defeat the Mavs that night and then go on and take the entire series four games to two in what is still one of the NBA's greatest upsets of all time. And fortunately for Phil, game three would become the first of many playoff games that he would have the opportunity to spend a small fortune on supporting his Warriors. So in our family, we believe, you know, can represent the Warriors and we believe in the greatness of the Warriors and that great things can happen uh, when you believe. Uh, that, thank you. That's really good. I mean, I, th- I get there's the the Warriors, but you you prepend that with the we believe and the we believe you can add yeah. other things, but the Warriors were the catalyst yeah. to say that we believe. So and that's really cool. And, and, and the value yeah. is that we believe, but the but the yeah. Warriors are, uh, and your love for them and what they did was was what prompted you. I uh, gosh, and it 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 uh, yeah, the, it it actually reminds me of the passage of time because uh, I came to graduate school in the Bay Area back in the mid seventies, uh, no doubt before you were born, and I went to see a Warriors game, and heck, there was no Oracle or, uh, uh, you know, let alone the Chase <laughs> Center. I think they played in the Cow Palace and there was yeah. a guy named Rick Barry who was a star. So I still remember that. Oh, wow. I don't know if, you, if you heard of Rick Barry. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and now people think the 2007 Warriors are ancient history given, you know, the run that for those yeah. of us in the Bay Area, the, the pleasure and joy they're giving us. So, so we believe is one. Um, let me pick one. And this goes to you know, knowing your biracial family and my biracial grandkids, I Mm. think you have something like love has no colors or something like that. Is that, did I get, do I remember that right? There's, there's two, there's one is love has no labels and there's one is just the colors of us. Ah, okay. So uh, maybe you can, uh, so I got a a two for one here. Maybe just talk about those two and why they're there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Um, I'll start with um, love as no labels. So this one's really special. And, and just like most of the panels on our wall, they've come to mean different things over the years. Like maybe there's something that inspired them. And then later as time goes on, different things reinforce their meaning and the value. 
Um, when I'm thinking about that, I, I like to go back to um, recently, though, when it first came out, was like May 10th of 2020. I'm sorry, can I interrupt? May 10th of 2020? May of 2021. No, you're right, 2021. And I'm sitting in my office, and I see this email. I'm preparing for a meeting for the day. I just got a few minutes, and this email comes in from my sister Amy and her husband Craig in St. Louis. And I open this email, and it says, important family information, which probably wasn't, you know, wise to open that up right before a work meeting. But they're writing to share that their 18-year-old child has come to understand that they're transgender. So their child was born Justin and is now June. And this is the first time you're... And if you can... This is the first time you're here. Yeah, this is the... Okay. Yeah. The first time I'm hearing about it, I had no idea before this that my niece identified as a female. Um, this tidal wave of emotions comes over me and my hands are shaking as I reach for the phone. I, I dial her number because I just feel so urgent that I connect with her after hearing this news. I'm just, and my voice is shaking as I tell her how proud I am of June. Our conversation is brief. We make plans to connect again later when we have more time. And I start to process this information. And meanwhile, our family is preparing to go to Missouri in a few weeks for June's high school graduation. So I, I talk to Phil and I share with him the news and we start to strategize about how best to share that with our daughters because at this time they're seven and nine and it just feels like a very heavy parenting moment and I want to make sure that we get it right. And I happen to look at the wall for inspiration and I see that panel, love has no labels. And I'm reminded of when it originally was inspired back in 2015 because we were watching a commercial and this commercial, the camera pans in at an outdoor shopping mall and there are people standing in front of a stage and on that stage, there's a black screen and on the screen, you see two individuals, but all you see are the whites of their skeleton bones. And these individuals start to walk towards each other and they embrace and they kiss and it's, it's just beautiful. And then they walk to the edge of the screen and they peek their head around and you see that it's two women. And the screen says, love has no gender. And they repeat the scene a few times, different scenarios. And the screen says, love has no race. Love has no religion. In the end, it says, love has no labels. And so that commercial, you can still get it, watch it on YouTube. And so we decided to watch it with our daughters. And I just wanted to kind of test the waters and see how they react and feel. And they immediately resonated with the message, which obviously warms our hearts. <clears throat> and so then a few days later, we decided to have a family talk, our first ever family talk. And we're sitting on my bed and I share with them this story of Jazz Jennings, someone who came out as in grade school as a youth to her friends as transgender. And at the end of it, I, I share with the girls, I was like, you know, both of you also know someone who's transgender. And then I shared this story about June. And they just sit there. You can kind of see the, the gears turning in their heads as they process it. And then Anjali pipes up and she's like, so, guess it means Nana and Papa only have granddaughters. 
now, huh? No more grandkids. Wow. wow. <laughs> that, that's and that's the, those are the only grandkids? Yeah. There's, those are the well, only June and your two kids? There's five grandkids, and they're all granddaughters now. And, uh, and I, I loved how they just rolled with it. It was so not a big, not a big deal. Um, the love that they have for their cousin transcends labels. And it really is living the value that love is no label, you know, sometimes it doesn't get caught up in that. And, um, that's not what they were focused on. She, my little feminist was kind of making a, making a joke about them all being girls now. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing that one. Uh, and just to pause on that or put a pin on it. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you and you and Phil handled that beautifully as a teaching moment and how your daughters handled it. And then, uh, just curious, like, uh, have they changed how they interact with June versus how they interacted with their cousin before? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. So we probably had three weeks before we went there for um, the graduation. And no, first off, no, they haven't changed so much, I guess, but they definitely will correct me or Phil if we accidentally slip up and use the wrong pronoun and they are advocating and an ally for their cousin. And um, it's, it's beautiful to see. Um, and they, they have questions since then that pop up that are definitely more curious. It probably comes out of that um, expanded um, relationship, but um, all loving. Yeah. Um, uh, oh my gosh. Just the fact that these are, your daughters are very young. I mean, still a year ago and, uh, and, yeah. and I mean, that's a reality in your family situation. So you have to talk about that. You were just trying to tell them something had changed in your, uh, w- with their cousin. And, and, and it sounds like you handled it beautifully. Yeah. They handled it beautifully. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm, it really was, um, as we've seen over the years, like having that wall in our living room has given us the language to have difficult conversations with a grace that I'm not sure we'd have had otherwise. Um, so it's, it's been a good foundation all around. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, without making an ideological statement about anything, love, it's just love. It's just love. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. Totally. The Life of the Mind podcast is from the Oak Guild Institute. At OGI, we seek truth from unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Listening and learning may lead to contested dialogue. We believe contested dialogue can still be loving and compassionate between those with opposing viewpoints. Oak Guild Institute is a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations, bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K-G-U-I-L-D dot O-R-G to learn more and get involved. And then the the colors of us, say more about that. Yeah, that is the centerpiece of the wall. Um, And it's got so many layered meanings. And it started out actually with, and as you mentioned, um, my husband is South Indian, and I probably should give a little bit background on him too, or describe him and and the girls. Um, He's South Indian. He works in finance. And 
we joke, like he would be the first to agree. He is a tall glass of water. He, he carries himself with the poise and confidence of Barack Obama combined with the sexy baritone of Idris Elba and the body of Michael B. Jordan. I'm a lucky woman to say that. Um, our daughters, Anjali and Neela, Anjali is now 10, and she inherited her daddy's deep dimples, his infectious smile, and his caramel skin. And Neela, who's eight, she's the littlest member of our family, but easily has the largest presence. She's often got a sparkle in her eyes and a smile playing at the edges of her lips as she sets up her next joke. She is, she's a character. We are a biracial family. And so it's always been important to Phil and I, as we raise our biracial daughters, that we talk openly about race and skin tone. Um, I remember there was one time we were driving to my in-law's house for a barbecue and, and a little, probably four-year-old Anjali's in the back seat and she starts counting the members of the car and she says, three chocolates and one vanilla. Mm. And Phil and I look at each other and we start to smile and she's like, mommy, you're the vanilla. As if I didn't know I was the vanilla. Um, which just goes to show like Anjali sees the colors of us. I have so many stories, you know, that where color has, definitely come into our lives. Uh, another story was whenever I went to Missouri for a friend's wedding, Beth Esther was getting married and I uh, went home for that. And I just took Neela. And so I'm bouncing a one-year-old Neela on my hip just to the side of the dance floor. And I see Angie Amschler who comes beelining over towards us. And she gets down eye level with Neela and she says, oh, she is beautiful. I didn't know you guys adopted. Where is she from? Angie Amschler sees the colors of us. And then there's another story, too, I recall in 2020 where Phil is out. We're still in COVID, and he's going to get his morning coffee, which has become one of his routines, and he's walking home. He's coming down the hill, and there's this white man in his 20s who's up early as well, and he's biking down the hill. And as he's going down the hill, he's picking up speed, and he gets next to Phil, and he leans over, and he's Mm. at my husband, mm. which is another representation of strangers see the colors of us. And this panel was originally inspired by a book by Karen Katz, where there's an eight-year-old girl who asks her mom, she wants to paint a self-portrait, and she asks her mom for the brown paint. And so her mom says, you know, if we mix the right amount of red yellow, black, and white. We'll get the right brown for your portrait. She says, Mom, brown is brown. Can I just have the brown paint? And she talks her daughter into going on a walk around their neighborhood in New York where they start to encounter friends and shopkeepers. And she realizes that everyone has a different skin color and that hers is more like cinnamon. Um, and her mom's is like French toast. And... One of her friends is like her favorite dark chocolate cupcake in that there are so many beautiful colors of us, which is what our family loves to celebrate, to help our daughters internalize that they are exceptional and that their value comes from within and not from the value that someone else places on the color of their skin. Thank you. And there's, I mean, there's so much to unpack 
on that one, whether it's in the US or other parts of the world. And even within your family, there's you teaching Anjali and Neela, but probably a journey for yourself because on the surface, it would appear, I mean, like I'm in, I was trained as an engineer, so I'm just logical. And so if somebody says I'm colorblind, that seems, uh, you know, they're Mm. saying I'm cool, I'm cool. I don't have any prejudice. On the other hand, you celebrate color and there's so many layers of which you can interpret that. Um, And I'm sure for your girls, what that means, that statement can have different depth and texture uh, almost like that brown color you talked about over the years, but you haven't codified it into, it's, it's, it's not a dictate. It's just, it's just acknowledging it uh, in, in, in a wonderful way. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. It's one of those, and we could take that so many different directions um, because it, it's definitely been something that I've grappled with my whole life. Um, I know early on I had different, ideas about um, acknowledging the color of skin. And I thought, you know, that would be racist. I didn't want to be racist. And so instead I tried to ignore skin color and, and not realizing how much that invalidates someone's, the core part, which is so core to someone's lived experience. Um, and just trying to be more open to that and acknowledging it, um, especially with our biracial family um, and helping them as well. And we don't have time to, 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 to get into that, uh, even though, you know, I'm, I, I'm Indian. The whole notion of color is not just a U.S. black, white kind of color thing. There's shades of color and in not very healthy way, the whole emphasis on color and even in India, even today where they sell whitening cream and things like that. It's just, uh, mm. uh, it's, 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 it's just a topic in and of itself, right? With shaming yeah. and things like that and, and marriage yeah. ads that talk about people who are fair. I mean, whatever the norm is, uh, fair fair is better. And so there's just a lot of junk in 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 us in, in societies that said and it's not restricted to the United States. Yeah. Any any other uh any other palette you want to talk about before we get into empathy? No, I think empathy is probably a good one to go to. There's there's so many, but um that one underpins so much. Okay, so when you put that on your family wall, what prompted that that what were some of the instances then what 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 uh, how do you live into it now yeah uh, um when that came out and that was definitely one of the original panels it definitely meant something else to me than it does now um i spent a lot of time and that is literally the word that's been emerging for me again and again this year um but the Going back to like empathy itself, like the Greek root of empathy is pathos or feeling. And so empathy literally means to be in feeling with someone. And there's a story that helps kind of bring some of that to life. Um, maybe a couple months ago, I was sitting on the couch and Neela comes running over to me, jumps into my arms and is screaming and I quickly look her up and down to make sure she's not, you know, bleeding. There's no broken bones. 
and I learned that she's been bit by a bug. And so I was like, oh, oh, okay. And then I set her down to go look at this bug. And it's one of those pincher bugs with the pincers on the tail. And I'm like, oh, Neela, those, those don't bite. You're fine. And I'm just, I'm walking away. And I'm immediately struck by how many different ways I could have handled that situation better. And so I come back around the couch. I sit down with her and I ask her, I was like, Neela, can you please forget everything I just said? Mama needs a do-over. I am so sorry that you are hurting and in pain. Man, are you scared? I'd have been scared. And in that moment that I take the time to practice empathy and connect with her feelings, she feels seen and validated. And I think that's one of the greater, greater things in the world that everyone is searching for, to be seen and validated and taking that time to connect through her feelings, which is just a universal language, um, we were able to connect. And play that forward a little bit, you know, just in my own personal life, one of my biggest challenges around empathy came just after the 2016 election. You know, as I mentioned, um, you know, it was a difficult time for me, the dark night, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I was feeling afraid, attacked, and unsafe. Um, and I grew up in the Midwest, and my parents and I have uh, different political uh, leanings, and so we haven't always agreed over the years. And so one of my biggest challenges on empathy came following that election, where I was hurting and in pain, and I wanted so desperately to be seen. I didn't need my parents to you know, I turned to them for empathy, but I didn't need them to fix anything or to feel my uh, pain for me. I just wanted to be seen and have my feelings validated. Meanwhile, my parents begin to feel a little defensive and they feel uh, afraid and attacked. Afraid of losing their daughter because of where our relationship was going. And I learned later from my sister, Amy, that you know, they felt like I'd lost sight of who they were, these people who I've known for decades, known and loved my whole life, and were just sitting there speaking and talking past each other, not able to connect. And I think the more work you can do on empathy, the more you can bring um, relationships into focus, the more you can see people. And so I've done a lot of work since then to kind of think through How can we connect through, just cut out all the noise, all the politics and everything else, and just get back to connecting through the universal language of emotion and feeling to rebuild those relationships? And so I think a lot of the work that I've done recently has started to bring those relationships back into focus. You know, it's not like everything is crystal clear. There's still some that are a little blurry, um, but we're working on it. And I, I just think there's so much power in that, that ability to connect through emotions and feelings and to help everyone feel seen. Mm. There's a famous quote by Maya Angelou that you probably know, like people will forget what you said and people will forget what you did, but they won't forget how you made them feel. Mm. And so kind of coming back to the panel, like in our family, we believe, you know, we don't always agree, um, but we believe in the power of empathy.
Thank you, Julie, for sharing. I resonated with her values. How about you? The colors of us? Love has no labels? Her kids rallied around their transgender cousin and learned the valuable lesson of loving without conditions. I love that kind of love. So what did you think about the value of we believe? To be honest, I first scoffed a little at Julie's story about the Warriors being her inspiration for the we believe value. I do actually enjoy sports and can even get a little defensive about a certain college sports team. So I kind of get her passion for the Golden State Warriors. And I did watch this year's championship game with a couple of huge Warriors fans, so I did see the passion in action. But why did We Believe deserve such a prominent space on Julie's wall? And then it hit me. We Believe may have been an action by fans to support the Warriors when they were struggling, but it quite possibly was a defining parameter in their success that year, and maybe this year. It was not just a shared, innocuous feeling among fans. It was a valuable and potentially necessary input, giving the team hope and determination to produce the victory. We forget how much power we have to influence when we believe in someone or in something. It helps center us, and it helps inspire them. In 1964, Robert Rosenthal did an experiment at a San Francisco elementary school. He conducted a test and told the teachers it predicted which kids' intelligence would increase in the coming years. After tallying results, he gave names of several kids to each of their teachers as having the most potential to improve their IQ. Over the next two years, those kids in fact increased their test scores compared with their peers. But here's the kicker. There was no test conducted of potential IQ improvement. It was just a generic standardized test. Rosenthal picked the kids completely at random. But the teachers believed in the growth of these kids and whether consciously or subconsciously, treated them with that belief of their potential. So as you can see, believing is powerful in many ways. That's all for today's episode. In part two of this series, Julie shares about her value of empathy and also of impact over intent. Jake and Julie will play out what these values look like as new circumstances and situations arise. They explore how to hold on to values when it gets difficult, how to hold to their values without being dogmatic, and we also explore when values need to adapt or change. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. It's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or get from other sources. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation. <laughs>